Hello and welcome to Fintech Bytes, a podcast series from CMS, in which we will discuss and provide insight into some of the latest technology and regulatory developments, market trends and issues affecting fintech and innovation in financial services. Hi all, welcome to the second part of our two-part series on open banking. My name is Yasmin Johal and I'm a lawyer in the financial services regulatory team at CMS London and I'm also a member of the CMS FinTech Practice Group. I'm delighted to be joined again today by my colleague Dilve Kang, who is a member of the Financial Services Regulatory Team and the FinTech Practice Group at CMS, and also Alan Ainsworth, who is the Head of Policy at the OBIE. Last time, myself, Dilve and Alan explored various aspects of open banking, um, and I'm delighted to be continuing this conversation with both Alan and Dill again. To really understand what the OBIE is doing, I think we need to look at the OBIE's roadmap. I was wondering if you could just explain what the OBIE's roadmap is. Well, we, we looked um, towards the end of last year at how far we'd gone with the development and delivery of open banking. And it was a, a bit of a, a, a re-look at, that was what the CMA order said, this is what the original roadmap said. That goes back to November uh, 2017. How much of that have we implemented? Where are the gaps? What do we need to do? And we determined that we'd, we'd made really good progress. We, we were nowhere near the numbers that we've been talking to around 2 million at that particular point, getting closer to the 1 million mark towards the end of last year. But we recognised that whilst a lot of progress had been made, there were more things that we needed to do. Yes, we needed to focus on growing the ecosystem. That's the core aim of OBIE, is to get more and more people benefiting from the, the, the services that, that third parties can provide in the open banking ecosystem. And so how do you go from 1 million to X million? And we recognise there are a few things that we need to focus on in order to do that. So what the roadmap essentially is, is a, a, a number of initiatives that we believe can create a step change in the number of people benefiting from open banking. So there were there were probably three areas that we focused on. The first was, how do we get open banking technology to work really, really well all of the time? So usability, how do we make sure that when a customer uses open banking for the first and subsequent times, it works really quickly, seamlessly, and the customer gets what they need from open banking? And so we're certainly seeing significant improvement in the quality of the APIs that the CME9 have implemented, and we're working on that all of the time. The second thing was to say, how do we get payments to really kick off? Because we'd seen really good progress on account information, but we hadn't seen much progress on payments. Now, clearly, for payments to work well, what I just talked about in terms of usability and seamless ways of making the open banking journey happen, it needs to work really well every time. You can't just not happen. It has to work quickly, easily, each and every time you make a payment. Because it does if you use other forms of payment. And people are not going to use open banking if it doesn't work. So we had we, we, we we're saying to us ourselves, well, how do we make payments work? So firstly, of course, performance is important. But secondly, it's are there any areas in which open banking payments don't have the, the relevant functionality to make them compete with other forms of payment. And we came up with a couple of things like refunds would be helpful to enable e-commerce. And we've also got in the roadmap something which we call variable recurring payments, which is essentially an open banking smart direct debit. 
or an open banking smart continuous payment authority on a card. Because one of the issues of both of those forms of payment is whilst you have got customer protection at the end, what you haven't got in the middle is customer control over when those payments go, what those payments are, where my mandates are, whether I can revoke, whether I can, can look at the terms and conditions of each and every one of those. With open banking enabled payments, you could have a system whereby you make, you, you give authority to an organisation to, to take payments from your account, but you could give specific parameters upon which that authority would work. So you could say a maximum of X pounds per transaction, a maximum of X transactions in a particular period of time, and a total amount of Y. And you could also then go and look at a dashboard that says that you've given that particular consent. You could revoke that if you chose to. So giving people control over what we're calling variable recurring payments, but would otherwise be known as something like a smart direct debit, is functionality that we're looking to consult on towards the end of this year. The third thing that we could clearly need to focus on is, is consumer protection. And um, we're looking at how we can make sure that if there are any issues around consumer protection, that we've addressed them within the standards work that we're going to be working on for the rest of this year and into next year. So which elements of the OBIE roadmap are you most excited about? I know you started speaking about variable recurring payments there, and they sound quite exciting. I think it is the variable recurring payments piece. Um, as I said, we're going to be consulting on, on variable recurring payments. The, ro the roadmap says we must consult at the end of October for a couple of months. Um, so that, 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 I think, could be game-changing in terms of the way in which customers can, can pay people and businesses with a great deal of control over how that all works. I'll give you a particular example. Um, I subscribe to um, a, a wine club. I won't say which wine club, but I subscribe to a wine club. They've got my card on file and they put, put that through every month or every quarter. But if I want to amend that, I can't look at that subscription payment by looking at my, my card um, online banking uh, system. There's nothing in there that says this continuous payment authority is active. If I want to change it at the moment, and I had a look at the, the website of this particular wine club, I have to phone them. There's no online method for, by which I can amend that. Indeed, there's, no, there's nowhere I can actually see that I've given that authority to anybody to take that money from my account. Um, the, only, the only time I know that money has gone is either when the wine arrives or I notice it on my bank statement. Now, with a, with a variable recurring payment, that sort of subscription trap issue, which has been recognised by uh, various different regulatory authorities over the years, is mitigated as an issue because I can see that I've got that active consent out there by logging on either to my, my, P, my PISP, my, my, my fintech provider of that service, or indeed at my bank. I can see in both places that I've given consent for that amount of money to be taken or between X and Y amount of money to be taken from my bank account. I can see that. I can revoke it if I choose to. A bit like you can with a direct debit, but you certainly can't do that with a continuous card payment authority. So that level of control is particularly important at ensuring that customers are not unfairly treated by this subscription trap issue and can make good choices and the choices they want to make about the subscriptions that they enter into. But that's just one, one example of the benefits of, of, of variable recurring payments. The other one that we're particularly interested in is sweeping. So when the, the CMA did their retail market, uh, their retail banking market investigation, 
they said that open banking should be able to enable sweeping from one account to another account, not necessarily from the same provider. Now, when I worked in banking, it was very common for businesses to have sweeping facilities that took spare cash into a savings account, but that was all within one bank. Now, the idea here is that a consumer or a small business could sweep into a savings account with a different provider, or they could sweep from a credit facility other than their own bank's overdraft facility. So what you have here is a way of essentially unbundling the bank account into its component parts, which you can understand from a competition perspective, can help improve the range of choice to customers and indeed give them a better deal on both their savings balances and their credit balances. So now on to a slightly different subject. The OBIE has been running for a few years. I was wondering what lessons have the OBIE learned? We've learned a lot. It's quite interesting, deal that we often get approached by other areas of the economy that are looking to do something similar to open banking. So we've, we've talked recently to Ofcom about open communications. We've talked to people in the energy sector about open energy. And one of the, one of the questions that they often ask us is, well, you know, how would you do this differently if you were to implement something like that for this sector? And I think what we know, what we know now means that if we were to do it again, it would take a lot less time. I mean, clearly, if we started today with open banking, we know we should have done, for example, app-to-app redirection to enable a customer to have a seamless journey if they have a mobile banking app and are also using a mobile app from a fintech. We, we, we also know that one of the big blockers to usage of open banking is poor customer experience. All of us have used um, apps and none of us use apps that have clunky customer experiences. And what we, what we realize is we need to set standards around customer experience to encourage the bank part of the customer journey to be consistent, but also to be low in friction. And we, we, we had a lot of debates about this as we were designing the customer experience guidelines. But I think everybody now accepts if you have standards around customer experience, you can ensure that you can say to the, say to the market, this is how an open banking journey works. And it's low on unnecessary steps and low on friction and clicks. I think we'd also have built refunds functionality into the, into the original standard and probably we'd have looked at doing variable recurring payments a lot more quickly. I think so, uh, I, I wouldn't want to criticize PSD2. I think PSD2 as a framework legislation was very helpful. What we've learned with open banking, though, is by having a single standard, rather than leaving everybody to decide how they want to create this interface, has meant that you can create this plug and play system for open banking that ensures that if you want to play, it's very easy to play because you know what the standards are. What we would have done earlier is ensure that conformance to those standards was a core part of what the OBIE needed to do. Because whilst it's very, it, I'm not saying it's easy, but whilst you can create a standard, What's really important is that you can say to the market, this organization conforms to that standard and you know that when you try to connect to it, it will work in the way it should work. And building those conformance tools was something we did in the middle of our journey rather than the beginning of the journey. I think if we'd have done that and ensure conformance more quickly, we could have got connectivity sorted out much earlier than we did. But I think what we know now is that if we were to do it again or to do it with a different set or to do something similar, in another geography, you could do it a lot more quickly and at a lot less cost. It's very interesting. So you just mentioned open energy and open telecoms as well. I was wondering if you could explain to our audience out there, what is open finance and open data? Yeah, 
open finance is essentially the extension of open banking into other financial services products for the sharing of data. Uh, so can customer consent to the sharing of their data, for example, for mortgages and loans and savings, but also potentially also for things like pensions, insurance and investments. So where the customer wants to share their data with another provider from, for those types of products, they can do so. And I think what we know in open banking is how you can do that in a secure way. We've got a lot of the standards and we believe that a lot of the standards that we've developed, some of which we've developed with others, could, could, could easily be extended to other sectors of financial services. At the moment, the call for evidence completes at the beginning of October. The call for input, should I say, completes at the beginning of October. And we wait to hear from the FCA as to what they're going to do next. So essentially, open finance is open banking for more financial services products. Open data or smart data is the principles of open banking, but for data for other regulated sectors. So the regulated sectors that smart, the Smart Data Initiative, which is run under Bayes, have looked at, that's the Department for Business Energy and Industrial Strategy. So that, that department has looked at how you could use uh, the principles of open banking to, for example, enable somebody to share energy data or to share telecoms data. So Ofcom are looking specifically at open communications. It's a particular project they've got under their umbrella. And they've been talking to us about how they could potentially understand how open banking works to see if that's something that would work for the sharing of data about your, as a consumer, your usage of your telecoms to enable you to potentially get better deals from your telecommunications providers, but not only that, understand and potentially share some that information with innovative third parties who might use that data to provide you with additional choices and additional ideas that you could benefit from. Yes, uh, I remember I used to work with somebody who used to always refer to this IFA in your pocket concept. I realise doing air quotes means nothing via a podcast, but um, this IFA in a <laughs> this uh, IFA in a pocket concept was always, you know, having all of your investment information, your banking information, your pensions, all in one place. And I know that now you can actually look at some of the uh, banking providers and some of the investment providers looking to build this kind of functionality. So I'm really excited to see what's happening in the future with it. The other thing I've heard is become your own Martin Lewis. <laughs> so you don't you you know you you essentially can see everything about your financial situation and and indeed your situation across a lot of different things in one place and have prompts and nudges that help you make better decisions absolutely i think it's definitely looking at things holistically as well the more information you have the better picture you can draw alan so what's the obie's role then in relation to open finance and open data well at the moment our role is to focus on delivery of the roadmap. That's what we've been set up to do by the CMA, and that is the focus of OBIE until the roadmap has been completed and implemented. Um, and the CMA is clearly looking at, at what next for, for OBIE and what next in terms of how do you continue to maintain the standards that we've developed and how do you ensure that the services and functions that we continue to provide to the ecosystem are, are provided uh, in the future. Uh, in terms of some of these other initiatives, I mean, obviously, uh, and I think most people would support us in, in, in helping the FCA and, and Bayes and other, other organisations understand how what we've developed in open banking can help with those other initiatives. But we don't have a role in those initiatives, um, apart from just from a social good point of view, helping them understand what we've done and how they could, 
how they could benefit from what we've done and learn from what we've done. And it, it remains to be seen quite how that all evolves and whether in the future a future version of, of OBIE has a role to play in that. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. That question is one for the CMA and others to, to, to work through over the course of the next six to 12 months, I guess. Great. Thanks, Alan. That's very interesting. It looks like there's loads going on in space. And, you know, we've looked at open banking and open finance and, you know, predominantly from a UK position. But I guess, you know, there's, this has been implemented across the globe from established markets such as the US and Australia to emerging markets such as you know, Brazil and India. It'd be really useful if you could explore kind of some of the other approaches around the world that you're familiar with and, um, how how that differs to the UK. Yeah, and as I said, I think at the, at the outset, a lot of um, representatives from other countries have come and spoken to us and to try to understand our learnings. And as I mentioned, if we started again, we could do this a lot more quickly and at a lot less cost um, to, to the, the CMA9 that, that, that funded us and to, to other organisations. Um, so I think we can give advice on that to, to, to countries that are perhaps looking at our experience and looking at the experience of others that have moved quite quickly. I mean, Australia comes to mind as a, as a specific example of a country that's adopted a rather different approach by looking at this from a consumer data right perspective. So they passed the Consumer Data Right Act. That's all about sharing the data. It's not about um, financial services per se, but more particularly, it's not about payments. It's about data. I think what's interesting in the context of that is it's saying you as a consumer have a right to get hold of this type of data from these sorts of providers. And it's really, it merges some of the principles of PSD2 with some of the principles that we have in, in Europe in, in GDPR, which is, to some extent, it's taking the principles of GDPR around data portability and enshrining them in a way that you can exercise that right of data portability and therefore share, get hold of that data that you have a right to uh, and share it with, with other organisations that can help you benefit from it. And I think that is a very interesting concept. And no doubt, as the Smart Data Initiative and the Open Finance Initiatives evolve, we will be looking and they will be looking at the Australian experience to see how that's worked and how that's benefited consumers in that country. I think the flip side of the Australian and UK approach of mandating this on, on organisations. What I mean by mandating is making it a requirement on the holders of data to make that available to others, is that in, in some markets, they haven't adopted that regulatory approach. The obvious example of that is the United States, where for lots of different reasons, the United States does not tend to anyway adopt an approach to regulation, but is far more market-led. But you do see in the US that something that looks very similar to open banking does take place. It takes place under commercial contracts between the holder of the data, the bank in, in our case, and the, the consumer of that data, the third party providers, we call it in, in Europe. And there's a, there, what that means is there are fewer uh, third party providers that are active in that market, but they have bigger presence in the US, but they've all got deals with potentially only but increasing numbers of the larger banks in the US. So if you're a if you're a customer of a large bank in the US, it is very likely you are also a customer of one of these large fintech organizations in the US. But it's a market-led approach that is driving that and a market-led approach to the development of standards. There are standards organizations that are developing the equivalent of open, open banking standards in the US. 
but it's from a market perspective rather than a regulator-driven perspective. I think what we can do in the, in the UK to finish on this point is look at some of these examples and see how we can be the best of both worlds. I don't see any reason why we can't have a regulatory approach, which we've got, that is supplemented by a market-driven approach. And one of the things I think that is exciting for me is the extent to which once you've laid the rails and the groundwork around open banking, the APIs have been implemented, the technical layer has been achieved, but increasingly banks and others can look at that investment they've made and say, how can we make more out of that big investment? Are there any other APIs that we can make available, perhaps on a commercial basis to third parties, that can leverage our investment in this infrastructure that we had to do for regulatory reasons? So I think we can have the best of both worlds over the course of time in the UK. Thank you very much, Alan, for taking time out of your diary to join us today. Before we end the podcast, let me just ask both of you one final question. Where do you see open banking in the next 12 months? Hopefully, I've, I've already answered it. I, I think the next 12 months are going to be a really exciting time for open banking. I think we're going to see more people using it. I think we're going to see more payments as a result of open banking. And I think we're going to see more products come to market that, that make a real difference to individuals and small businesses in the UK. Great. Um, I agree with Alan. Um, I think you know, if you look at it from a fintech perspective, many fintechs are seeing the benefits of operating within the open banking space um, and the opportunities to drive innovation and expand their business models. So additionally, I think over the next 12 months, we're definitely going to see more fintechs disrupting the open banking world either themselves or through collaborating with incumbents and uh, more established players. Thanks everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Anne Nainsworth from Open Banking. If you want any further details around the topic or on any of the points that we've discussed today in this podcast, then please could you contact either myself or Yasmin and our contact details are linked below. We also frequently publish thought leadership on this area and you can also visit us at our fintech webpage or our Twitter webpage, which is also linked below. Thanks for listening and take care.